Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, my name's Janice, and I am an alcoholic. And that's who I am and what I am and where I am is right here, right now. And I'm going to try and stay in the moment. I've been talking to some other women out there. Uh, the most important thing is just to tell the truth. You know, I want to talk from my head, not from my heart, because I get scared and fearful and everything. And, and that's not what I want to do, because I've worked too hard to be where I'm at today. My sobriety date is October 16th, 1985, and um, I'm truly grateful to be sober. You know, it's an absolute miracle that we are sober sitting in this room tonight, safe and sane and sober. And you're going to hear, you'll probably hear some of the things Clancy says a little bit. I ta- I listened to him for the last 22 years, Bob Bazan. I listened to a lot of old speaker tapes, Poor Boy Rice. Marty Mann, the first woman in AA. You know, I tried to listen to all these old-timers and how they did it before there were meetings every you could snap your fingers and get to, you know. And uh, so I guess I need to tell you a little bit what it was like. And I haven't talked, and I'm scared because I haven't talked for about five years. I do service work since I've been down here. I go and do service work. I still sponsor a lot of women. Because I know if I'm not doing service work, I'm into self, and if I'm into self, I'm selfish. And I get to my selfish self-centeredness is the core, is the root of my problem. And I can't afford to be there, stay there. You know, so I have to, me into me, I'm at my worst, and me out of me, I'm at my best. And so that's why I'm here tonight. Uh, I... Came, I'm from the South. I don't know if you can tell I got a little Southern accent. When I moved down here to Florida, people from Canada and Maine and all these Northern, and I don't hear a lot of that hillbilly Southern hospitality like what I'm used to up there. So, But I, uh, my mom and dad, my dad's from Tennessee, my mom's from Kentucky, and they had me, and they were very poor Southern people, worked hard and drank all week and drank on the weekends. That's what they did. That's what my whole family did. My mother came from a family of 16, well, really 18. There was a set of twins died from the country. My grandpa made moonshine. And uh, my dad's from Tennessee, and he worked at General Motors, and he came from a real poor family, but he was a city slicker. He was from the city. Anyway, they had me, and, you know, uh when I came home with a, I want to say this though, because if loving God would have got, if loving God would have, I would have never got drunk if loving God was my problem. Because I always love God. And what I want to say now is that I'm an alcoholic. I believe I have a physical allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind where I believe in the physical part of it, like Bill Wilson did. I had to have something to hang my hat on to be an alcoholic because it was too painful and embarrassing for me to say I was an alcoholic because where I come from, the women that were alcoholic were bad, 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 and so were the men. I mean, if you were alcoholic and you weren't in some church, you know, it was bad. 
So uh, when I was a kid, mom and dad, they, my drinking, I was always around it and loved it. It was always there on weekends. And I would always have it around. My mom started giving me power cork when I was born. I don't know if any of you know what that is. So I believe that power gork has started for me when I was a child is a strong drug. And uh, so when I got about 12 years old, I found my first drink of alcohol where I could drink all I wanted and as much as I wanted. And I blacked out the first time I drank. The teenager. I came home uh, about a, two years later. I had a boyfriend, and my mom told me I had to go get married. I was, uh, you know, I was 14. I was almost 15 years old, and my husband was almost 20 years older than me. And uh, but down south, that's kind of what we did. But I was married. I mean, that's in hillbillies getting drunk, you know. At least, I, you know, I was married. You had to get married. And this man was an alcoholic. And this man here, I want to tell you, I, oh, Lord, we drank and fought and we fought and drank. He beat me up all the time. And one time he he beat me up, stabbed me. I was pronounced dead on arrival at a hospital. He was drunk. He come in. I get in his face. He starts beating me up and we get into a fight. Game on. You know, here we go. Part of it. And, uh. I want to say this, and it's important that uh, later on, uh, with the drinking and my drinking and blacking out and everything, that's how we lived, just drinking and fighting and drinking and fighting. And then it kept going on, and this man, he started getting into other things and drugs. My drinking progressed, you know, fighting and going in the bars, staying up all night. Drugs got involved in. Drugs are a part of my story, but I can honestly tell you the reason I did drugs and alcohol was because it helped me control and enjoy my drinking. Because alcohol is the love of my life. Alcohol made me strong, made me smart, made me pretty, gave me courage. It did anything and everything I ever needed to be a human being, who and what I wanted to be. I loved alcohol. I loved going in the bars. I liked getting dressed up with him, you know, and just having the fun. But I always blacked out. The blackouts were always there. And then uh, he and I would fight some more. We got into another fight, and I ended up shooting him. I shot him. <laughs> you can't keep a good woman down, and I... <laughs> You know, I shot him. He come at me. I'm running my, and he said, you know, you're going to do this again? He said, I'll, sh you know, I said, get away from me. He said, and I told him, I said, he said, well, shoot me. And I went, boom, boom. I got him. <laughs> I caught him in the head and the stomach, you know. And, uh, you know, and, but, you know, that's what we do when we're drinking. You know, in our cups, we're unlovely creatures. You know, we truly are, but fight, but to me, that was exciting. That's the only life I knew. That's what I see my parents do, my aunts, my uncles. That's the only way I knew how to live. Drinking was as much a part of my life as breathing. You know, I didn't know any other way. That was just our lifestyle. I didn't really know sober people except for the ones that went to church, that were in the Pentecostal churches or whatever they are. And, you know, in between all these drinks and drunks and you're full of remorse and everything. I've been dunked in creeps. <laughs> I've had been sprinkled, 
You know, I've done everything there is to do in religion to finally get feeling better. And I could never find that peace and serenity I always wanted, you know, what I needed. Anyway, long story short, all that fighting and carrying on and everything we did, and he'd get drunk and I'd get drunk. And I want to tell you ladies right now, it took me many years in this program. Because on paper, I was pregnant and he beat me. Beat the baby. I mean, there's all kinds, that's the stuff that goes with it. And on paper, I could look real, real pitiful, you know. But my part, thank God for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I, at working the fourth step and doing those inventories, my part I played in that was on paper, even though I looked pitiful, the truth, like this lady down here with 34 years, tell the truth. You know, and I have to be honest with me. I got as much out of that as he did. There was a payoff, because that always gave me an excuse to go out and get drunk again. You know, he did this to me so I could have a reason to take off and go. You know, I'd get up in his face and I'd run my mouth, or I'd tell him this, or i got to get the last word. The women get the last word. You, I like to get the last word. Anybody in here? I'm going to get the last word. Well, I paid a price for it. So... I had to finally take a good, honest look at why and how those things happened to me because of the disease of alcoholism, how I acted and reacted to everything. That's all we did. We did not live. My whole family, none of us lived. We acted and reacted. Needless to say, I remarried, and I married a man I swore I didn't want around anybody, and I was trying to quit drinking. I'd seen uh, counselors. I'd been put in jail with him. Uh... This disease has boldly taken me where no human being should have to go. We got one, drunk one night fighting, got put in jail, and I beat somebody up in jail, and then they took it back then in the 60s, early in the 70s, they took you to a, you act up in there, They where I come from, they took you to the mental ward. Lock your ass up in the mental ward, and then you don't have alcohol. Once you're in there, I tried to smack one of them, and then they shoot me up with Thorsey. When I come to there, strapped down on a, gurney back in Seaward, it's not pretty with no clothes on. You know, this disease will take you down. You know, it's just pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And not intended. You know, it was just an innocent, that's just how we lived, and I have family members doing it now, and tonight I'm sure they'll be going on. So anyway, I married, I married a man that did not drink alcohol. I was happy, but we owned, he owned a bar. And, of course, I did. What did I do? I'd go to work as a barmaid, you know, so game on. But he didn't drink. He was a gambler. And that's a whole nother world. But I was in my cups completely. I was in my cups, and the blackouts got worse. I started seeing psychiatrists. I would... uh you know, go see different people about different things. I tried to blame it all on my childhood, which my childhood wasn't pretty. And this, again, that fourth step in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, when I was a little girl and we lived in a trailer park, I wanted to win this little white Bible. And I need to tell you this for me now. And I would go around knocking on these trailer doors trying to win this Bible. And I got up to this one door when in, we were selling magazines. I go in that trailer, I get molested. I come out of that trailer and I hide behind the back of a trailer because I couldn't go in and tell my mom and dad what was going on because they'd get in a fight like I had learned how to do. And I was scared. 
And so the Jesus loved me, God thing, I just didn't want no part of that anymore. I had been, I had, uh, was pronounced with rheumatic fever and scarlet fever when I was a little child. And God, they said I was going to die. And I can remember looking at them and my body going, why are they doing this with me? You know, and trying to keep me alive. The reason I tell you that little story, because by the time I got to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I could not find, I didn't want anything to do with God. I was mad at God. My mother was born crippled. She, God, this is a pitiful hillbilly story. <laughs> this is terrible. But when I was a little kid, <laughs> but you know, when you get behind your alcoholism, when you're not in it and you're not drinking and you're not blaming and you're not judging, and you're not in the disease, and you're behind it, you look back at it and go, ooh, you know, I'm far <laughs> God, this is true. You know, all this stuff really is true. But my mother was born crippled, so when we lived in that trailer court, people would make fun of her, and I'd beat them up. So I was really a tough girl. I was pretty tough. But, you know, I could always rationalize and justify my behavior because I had a reason. But anyway, this man I married, he had five kids. He was older than me, so I was the mother of five stepkids. I joined the Catholic Church. I started getting drunk in the basement of that church. <laughs> Everybody, the women would say, would you like a glass of wine, Janice? And I'd say, sure. And I drank. And I was running the Christ Renewsies Parish. I was doing all the stuff you do. I was a cheerleading advisor for one of the most prominent Catholic schools in Ohio. Uh, I had a 12-year-old daughter. And my life from where I had come from, and I had tried to drink, control and enjoy my drinking, and I started taking Valium and nerve pills, going to the doctor, making the rounds, you know, well, he's got, I got these five step kids, I got, you know, I mean, you're just always in a panic, and an excuse, I was a walking, talking excuse, excuse maker. And so I finally went to see my doctor, and he said, Janice, you know, and the blackouts were bad. I would go down in that church, and then last time I was drinking, I went to in there, and I'd stop at a bar on the way home. And I'd sit there till 3 o'clock. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing sitting here till 3 o'clock in the morning? Well, that's what my husband told me the next day I did, because I didn't remember. I'm a blackout drinker. I know, you know, I never remembered. So that... That lifestyle and that behavior, I could feel that loss of control in my life. I could feel I had reached a place of my self-will using the alcohol to get where I was at a place of respect, from where I, from a trailer court to where I was at. You know, I had money. I had a nice home. I had everything a woman could ever possibly want, Okay. And I was dying. I was unhappy. It didn't make sense to me. I had never heard of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd never heard of AA. Nothing. And so I called my doctor and I said, I can't quit taking these Valium. He got scared because he's writing me all kinds of scripts and I've got a route of doctors where I'm going around taking them. And I'm drinking gin martinis with three Valium. And one day, my daughter, I was going out the door, or I was going out the front door to meet a girlfriend at this country club to have uh, lunch. And my husband looked at me, and he said, what, where are you going? I said, I'm going to see Cheryl. He said, you don't like her. That's not the exact word he used, but he said, you don't like her. And we got in this big fight. And I could see my behavior from the past. How, uh, game on, here we go, you know, let's get it going. 
that attitude, that fighting and arguing. And I stormed out the door and I got in that car and I was driving over to that country club and I thought, a moment of clarity, I don't like her. <laughs> I never really, I really didn't like her. She was an excuse for me to go drink. I had to have an excuse because it did not make sense why I would want to just drink. you got to have a reason to just drink. So anyway, I ended up, and I voluntarily called Miami Valley Hospital, turned myself into the turning point, and I made arrangements for the school, the cheerleading, everything that there was around me to take my responsibilities, take care of everything. I checked into that hospital, and I was sitting there that morning, and uh, my husband took me, and he said, uh, the nurse asked me, he said, when did you have your last drink? And he said, I heard somebody here talk about their daddy, their higher power. Well, I'd made him, as a result of this program for many years, I didn't know, but I'd made him my daddy God. You know, I didn't have a God of my own understanding. So men were my gods. And I'd made him my daddy God, and I'm like, holy wow, there's something seriously wrong here, you know. And I said, nope. I had a drink at 3 o'clock this morning. He didn't have a clue what I was drinking. He didn't want to know because he had his own plan. Anyway, I was in that treatment center for two weeks, and I looked over at this woman sitting in a room one night, and she said, I, I looked over at her, and I said, uh, Judy, what are we doing here? And she said, I said, they're talking about alcoholics. And she said, Janice, we've been going to meetings for two weeks. Hell, I didn't even know it. That's how my brain was. I was sitting, and that's proof. You can listen, you can hear, 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 but you don't listen. I mean, my denial system was so powerful, it's scary. And I stayed in there for, the, and when I say my sweetest day, October 16th, there was a nurse there, and she told me, she said, Janice, I'm going, this is the last, I had uh, DTs, I had, um, my hands were curling like this. I was taking 30 Valium a day plus sleeping pills. I was a drugstore junkie at that time. So uh, when they got me recovered or out of there, I was in really, really bad shape. When that alcohol and drugs started coming out of me, I couldn't think. I couldn't feel. I couldn't breathe. I was in bad, bad shape. And then I started going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, and I found a home group, and there were women there, and I hated women. I hated women because you always messed with my husband. You know, we'd fight over being jealous, you know. And I didn't I didn't want anything to do with women, and I didn't like men. You know, I was just miserable. I was the most unhappy person. But I can tell you today that with Going to that meeting and having good old-timers in that meeting where I was at that worked the steps, and the men in that meeting had excellent sobriety. The men in that meeting knew where I was and what was going on with me, and they would listen to me, and they would direct me to women, you know, and it was so powerful, and I can't tell you if it, Kenny Baker used to always tell me, he'd say, Janice, yesterday's bread won't feed you today. You stay away from them over here. And he'd get introduced me to other women till I could learn to love myself enough so I could learn to care about other women. My daughter was 12 years old when I went in there. And, you know, I wanted her to, I wanted to get up and go to school. I wanted her to go to school, but I just couldn't, I couldn't do it at the end. There was nothing left in me. I was just empty. 
And so when I got into the into AA and I tried to go to those meetings, I would drive to the meeting, and I couldn't remember how to get there. I went to two meetings for 15 years. My husband wouldn't let me go anywhere else because he said, that's where you got to go and come back because he was jealous. He didn't know where I was going or what the hell I was doing, he'd say. And all I knew was is I wanted to stay sober. And if you want to stay sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't care what's going on in your life, you can. You know, hit your knees, get a sponsor, do whatever it takes. And and I would go to those two meetings. It was a step meeting and a discussion group. And sometimes he would let I would be allowed to go to the women's group or go do some of these different things. But I know this, I love the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had a sane mind, things that clarity started coming alive to me, you know. And I started looking back, that first step, having a, you know, being powerless over alcohol. You know, when I look back over my shoulder and looked at my life, I'm like, oh, my God, the wreckage. Everything that had went on in my life, how in the hell do you clean something like that up? What do you do? You know, and my life is unmanageable. My husband at this time owned a bar and a restaurant and a gambler. We flew to Vegas all the time. We were high rollers. I seen Frank Sinatra. Oh, I've, I've done it all. You know, I had a ball out there. It was fun. I didn't know how to live sober. I did not know how do you live sober? How do you do anything? Watch the Super Bowl. <laughs> how do you do anything sober? You know, I didn't know how to do it. But I knew my, and he wanted me to go drink. And I see you couples here, and my heart just swells. I am so proud of you coming in here together and seeing couples in the program Alcoholics Anonymous. It is an absolutely wonderful, wonderful life. And to see you guys just just makes me cry. It really does. But anyway, I started working the steps. And uh, those, those 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, when the, I need to talk about this stuff. The second step, when it said your life's unmanageable, when I'd sit in those meetings, honestly, I would go, there's nothing wrong with me. I didn't think there was anything wrong with me. I'm sober. There's nothing wrong with me. I was always a good person. I was going to church. I was a big shot here. I, and then I was doing this and I was doing that. I was a human doing. I was not a human being. You know, I did lots of things, but I didn't know who and what I was as a human being. Didn't know who I was. And uh, uh, when I started taking a look at how unmanageable my life was, and I got to that second step and it said, find a God of your understanding. And I was sitting in a meeting and that woman said, you know, my daddy God said, you got to find a God of your understanding. That was the beginning of the end of my ego. That was the beginning of my end of everything. That knowing that I could find a power greater than me that didn't own me, that I could have independence, that I could have my own thoughts, feelings, and beliefs, you know, as a woman. And I did get a God of my understanding. And I got to that third step to make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. You know, I turned my will and life, all my life, over to alcohol, over to drugs, over to my husband, 
but I'd never turn my will and life over to what? How do you figure this thing out called God? You know, what is it? And I'd hear in meetings where they would talk about good, orderly direction. That's all I was looking for in my life, a peace of mind and good, orderly direction. So I would hang my hat on that. I love that, just good, orderly direction. And when they said change your life, they kept saying, Janice, you've got to have a personality change for the recovery sufficient to the recovery of alcoholism, you know, of alcoholism. And I said, well, I've quit drinking. I've quit drinking. I've quit drinking. That's all I'd say. What else do you want me to do, you know? You know, Jesus, what do you people want from me? What else can I do? Quit interrupting the meeting. They'd bring up a topic, and I'd talk about the weather. They'd bring, I mean, it was so bad. I just could not get it together. I just couldn't do it, you know. But they said, you've got to do this. So I would keep going, and, the, and I went to a, a, a group where Father Leo was, and he was talking about the third step, and I love Father Leo. And he was talking about how you turn your will and life over. You need to turn your will, which is your thinking, you know, over, and your life is your feelings. You need to change how you think and feel about stuff. They said, Janice, you run around like you got a rope around your neck. You know, you're either thinking, thinking, thinking like some neurotic, crazy woman all the time, judging, controlling, manipulating, telling them how to run the meeting, who should be there. And they would always tease me. They'd say, Janice, we're going to call the AA police on you. We're calling the AA police. We're getting the police on you. And I never understood it because I couldn't even get the meetings or why people would show up. More or less the big picture of Alcoholics Anonymous, how powerful it is, how strong it is, how we save lives when nobody else can. You know, a doctor couldn't save my life. A preacher couldn't save my life. Psychiatrist meant no human power could help me. No human power. You know who helped me? The smiles on your face, laughing at me. Because I couldn't understand what you were saying, and that's why I love this meeting, the enthusiasm in this group and in this meeting. They have fun here. I love to have fun. I miss having fun. And if I don't get to a meeting or I'm out doing service work or doing something to have fun, my mind's like greasy eggs on a plate. It'll just slide. You know, I can, just like that, just like that, I can be in, go into the poor me, you know, pitiful me. It's all about me again. It's all about me. You know, poor little Janice. Well, you know, get out of yourself. And so... <laughs> I finally got that third step, and I went back, and they kept saying, well, Janice, you need to learn to be congruent. Be congruent. Quit thinking or you're feeling. You act like it's, read the more about alcoholism, where it says, are you a sociopath, a psychopath? You act like a manic depressive. You know, are you a real alcoholic? What the hell are you? And I'd say, I'm a real alcoholic. That's what I am. But in my cups, I had sociopathic behavior. You don't shoot people. Regular people just don't shoot people. <laughs> I mean, you don't stab people. You know, manic depressives, I've got, uh, when I got stabbed that time, I've got uh, marks on my arm here. Where I tried to cut my manic depressive. You know, when you wanted, when I was thinking about suicide and I heard in a meeting, go to as many meetings as you can and listen. Try and find a piece of your puzzle. This is about me. Oh, wait a minute. Felt like I was going crazy. Well, if it's about me, why do you tell me not to think about me? (laughs) 
and you're crazy going in, and then they're driving you like this. You know, I swear for the first three years, I thought I was just nuts. I thought everybody here was playing a game on me, or it was just, it didn't make sense. It's like everything they'd say is ass backwards, or we're doing this. I was just crazy. But uh, I did get start getting that congruency. Think what I feel and feel what I think. You know, try to get that flow going, get that energy flowing, get that energy going, you know, instead of blocking it with alcohol, blocking it with judgment, blocking it with with resentments. And, you know, I was so weighed up with resentments, I was like a damn chia pet, you know. <laughs> I just grow. I just grow. It would just come out of me. And I... <laughs> And I couldn't help it. It was so bad, you know. And how do you get rid of a resentment? And I kept remembering. I, and my husband started having an affair because I was going to meetings. And I hung from a tree all night one night trying to catch him. So I wouldn't be an Al-Anon for a million dollars, man. I'd rather been drunk let him chasing me. That sucks. <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> I just know this, I know, but that Thursday, I did, I was able to really start thinking. I could think on my own, and I hit that four step and started writing it down, and I understand that number one, or number one, what is it, offender is resentment. And that resentment will eat my guts out. But I'm going to tell you what my number one enemy is today. My number one enemy today at 22 years sober, and I've learned this, is that I forget. And if I don't come to meetings, if I don't have my nose in a step, I work the steps all the time. You know, I'm every week I'm doing something. I forget. I forget that I just shot somebody and go back to jail. I get out and I drink. I forget that I'm driving home drunk. And I'll do it again. I forget having bleeding ulcers. I forget. And being in sobriety, our personal adventures before and after, I got, oh, man, I got stories in sobriety like crazy. But I didn't drink alcohol. I never blocked the sunlight of the spirit. But the most powerful thing I have ever seen is that four-step where I got down on paper and I started getting rid of those resentments, starting to hear the truth and want the truth in my life. People who do not recover are people who fail to be honest with themselves. And God, all I wanted was a peaceful mind and a good life. I've been rich and I've been poor. I've tried to buy this thing and I've tried to beg for it. It doesn't work. Nothing works except me working it. That's what it says, how it works. You know, get honest. Get honest. When my head hits that pillow at night, I have to be honest. And that four step, I've spent thousands of dollars trying to get better between my ears. Between my ears. And, and, it, and that's what got me there. I went to a me, I was going, leave, leaving the door again. My husband said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to a, Weekend with these girls to learn how to breathe. And he was mad at me. And he said, I'll teach you. How much does that cost? That's 150 bucks. He said, I'll put a bag over your head for free. <laughs> and I'll teach you how to breathe. <laughs> and you know what? He's right. You know, when Dr. Bob said, keep it simple, it is that simple, man. You breathe in and you breathe out. Yeah. <laughs> 
I was just telling John before the meeting, I went to all these, I went through adult children treatment. I went through codependency treatment. And I finally got a good sponsor in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And she said, Janice, I can save thousands and thousands of dollars if you would just start working the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't have to spend money to do that. This thing is for free and for fun. And, you know, through those steps, doing the fifth steps and sixth and seventh, how I acted and reacted. Step seven is where I found the humility, the humility to be honest and let you get to know me. Eight and nine, God, you can look the world in the eye. I can shake hands with anybody, look the world in the eye. Step ten, I call it my CPR step. You know, it has to be CPR because when that thought hits my brain, if I wait for it to come out of my mouth, my ass is in trouble. If when it hits my brain, I got to start working on me right then, right now, right now. And then step 11, it's better to love than be loved. Oh, what an order. I learned about big shotism. I learned about ego. I've learned about every, oh, my God, and I'm still learning. And enthusiasm means the God within, the God within. You know, never lose your enthusiasm for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Never, ever lose the enthusiasm of seeing new people laugh and smile. Because there's no pill you can take for this disease. It's the most painful disease there is. I drank alcoholically, blacked out, and got drunk. But I suffer, if you suffer from what I suffer from, is the disease of alcoholism. means I separate myself. And that's what I suffer from. You know, I have a disease that's going to be with me for the rest of my life. And the 12th step is why I'm here tonight. I'm willing to go to any length to help another person. And you new people here, please believe me. Please believe me for us. Real quick, there's a prayer. It's a little thing, and I forget which poet said it. It's it's called Angel by the Pool. And there was a priest, a minister and a scientist and a theologian and an alcoholic, and God was going on vacation. And they said, well, we're, he's going to pick somebody to take over for a day. And he asked each one of them, well, you know what they all said, I'll preach to everybody, and the scientist said, I'll explain it to them. You know, and they went down the list, and he come to the alcoholic, and he said, why do you, what makes you think you have the right from where you've been and what you did? And he said, all I want to do is get well so I can tell him how I did it. You know, and that's what we have to do. That's how we save lives. You know, we have the power to do something for people that nobody else can. You know, and it's for free and for fun. And I thank you guys. (laughs) And I love each and every one of you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.